Well, welcome back to our second week of our course, Defending the Faith, where we are seeking to be encouraged and equipped um, from the Scriptures uh, to be individuals, to be Christians who can um, articulate the things that we believe in an in a intellectual, coherent, logical way, um, that we can defend the things that we believe uh, against arguments that we would find from the world from non-Christians. And so we want to uh, take, God, take God's Word and uh, use it, understand it, and uh, have it encourage us and equip us to do this task. Um, so as you can see, I, wrote, I tried to write some intimidating words on the board, um, just really just to impress you. Um, but we're going to take a look at, at some of these things and go through it. But we want to begin by uh, seeking God's help in this. So let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you and we are so grateful for your kindness to us, for your mercy, for your grace, uh, that you are the God who has made all things, that you are in control over all things, uh, that in your love and kindness and your desire for us to know you and to love you, you have revealed who you are and given us understanding through your word of the world that you have made and the reason for it. Uh, And most importantly, you have drawn us to yourself in the message of the gospel and the sending of your son to redeem us from our sins that we would have relationship with you and know true joy and true peace. And so as we seek to study these things from your word tonight, we ask for your spirit. I pray for myself that you would give me uh, words to speak that are clear, and for all of us that we would gain understanding, that we would be equipped and encouraged. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So last week, we, uh, we've kicked off by just gaining a, a definition and understanding of what it is we're doing, defending the faith, what we, we call apologetics, right? Making a defense for the things that we believe. And as we looked at that, we got from the Bible itself uh, the, the mandate to do apologetics, right? And, and who is it that's called to do apologetics? We said Scripture makes it clear that all Christians, every believer is called by God's word to be engaged in defending what they believe, to be engaged in apologetics. Um, So we want to be encouraged and equipped by God's word to take up that task, right? We want to be obedient to God's word and being able to do the thing that we're called to do. Um, So we saw that that mandate from scripture and then we even looked at some examples that we see uh, of those in scripture doing that. Uh, So some of the Gospels written are themselves apologetics, reasons why Christianity should be believed. We see the pattern of Paul the Apostle in his ministry again and again going into either the synagogues or into the public arenas and persuading, right, giving an apologetic to believe in Jesus who is the Christ, who has come to save. Um, So we've got this mandate to do apologetics. And tonight what I want us to go through is uh, just looking quick, very quickly at what is the message, 
what is the mission, and then we're going to spend most of the evening talking about what is the method. So we're going to look at the message, the mission, and then for most of our time we're going to talk about method of doing apologetics. So first, briefly, what is the message of the Christian apologist? What is this message that we are bringing? The message of the Christian apologist is nothing less than the whole of Scripture. This is the message. We are bringing the Bible to the minds and ears of those who will listen. That's that's what the message is. Bringing this word to bear on the ears, the minds, the hearts of those who will listen to us. The Bible provides God's perspective on His world. We understand and know that God is the creator of all things, sovereign in control over all things. And He who has made all things gives us revelation to understand all that He has made through His Word. So this is the message that we bring, right? Our, our viewpoint, the Christian worldview, and the message we bring is nothing less than Scripture. And ultimately, the central theme in the Scriptures is God's saving work to redeem a people to Himself, what we call the gospel, right? The central theme in the Scripture is God redeeming a people to be his people, to know him and to love him by sending his son into the world to take on sin, to die the death that we deserve, to be raised from the grave in vindication that we would trust and believe in him and therefore be children of God. So the message of the Christian apologist is to bring the message of the gospel, to defend all of scripture and to bring the gospel into arguments and those who would listen. That's simply it. That's the message. So what is the mission? Well, the mission is just to bring that message. It's to bring God's perspective of the world that he has made to the minds of others. We find God's perspective in the scripture, so we are simply interpreting everything through the lens of scripture. In apologetics, we're engaging in conversations with people. We're trying to make sense of the world. What is, uh, how, how do we understand logic? How do we understand knowledge? What is meaning? What are all these, these big, big questions? How do we answer all these things? And we are bringing God's perspective to all of those things to those who will listen. The ultimate message, as we said, of Scripture is the saving message of the gospel. Therefore, the ultimate mission of the Christian apologist is to bring the gospel message to those who will listen. To defend the gospel message and to bring that to hearers. So, when we talk about apologetics, we're talking about engaging in arguments, right? Engaging in arguments with non-believers, To make them see and understand what God's perspective is on the world that he has made. But apologetics is not about winning arguments. It's about winning souls. Right? We're not just out to to settle the argument. Right? To walk away as we've stumped our listener. Ultimately, ultimately, and we, we rely on the power 
of the Spirit of God, we want people to gain understanding so that they might believe and trust, right? Our mission is the souls of those who are lost to be found. So the message, God's word, central theme, the gospel, and the mission is to bring the gospel to non-believers that they might believe. Now, God's word not only gives us the mandate to do apologetics, but it also gives us a, a method for how we should do apologetics. We talked a little bit last week when we were looking at kind of our, the central theme verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, about uh, kind of embodying scriptural um, character when we do this, right? We want to be uh, generous and kind. We're not trying to uh, be offensive to people, right? We want to embody who Christ is. But there's also a way to go about how we do the arguments themselves that Scripture will give, um, will give us. So since we're taking the Scriptures, the Word of God, and we're starting from a place where we declare that God's Word is the truth, and therefore it is dependable for understanding all things, we are claiming at the outset an ultimate commitment. Right? As we come to any conversation, any engagement with a non-believer, at the very outset, we have an ultimate commitment to this word. We're saying this is truth. This is where we gain understanding and sense to make sense of all that is out there. So we come with this ultimate claim. God's word is our ultimate commitment. It's our ultimate standard of truth. Therefore, God's word becomes for us what we call a presupposition, right? This big word, presupposition. It simply is saying that we are presupposing something about the world we live in. We're, we're coming to conversation with a non-believer and we're holding with us a, an assumption a, a presupposed understanding of any conversation, of any uh, look at the evidences and facts, anywhere this conversation goes, we are bringing with us something that's already presupposed. God's word is the ultimate standard of truth. You with me so far? Okay. So, in order to understand this, um, it's it's simply saying that presuppositions, this big word, it's just a basic heart commitment. That's how uh, John Frame defines this. Basic heart commitment. Something that we are already committed to in coming to any conversation with others. So here's what you might come up against. Someone wants, you want to engage in a conversation with a non-believer. And they may argue and say, okay, so you believe that the Bible is the ultimate standard for truth. But that's not what I believe. So in order for us to have an intelligent, engaging conversation, you need to lay that aside. Right? You, you need to let that go. 
because I don't believe that that's the ultimate standard of truth. And then we can have a conversation and begin conversation there. So that brings us to our first principle. We're going to talk about two principles for understanding. This is, this is a little bit deep end, but we, we got to lay a foundation under our feet for how we can engage in conversation. So the first principle is called the no neutrality principle. The no neutrality principle. It's simply saying that there is no place in thought engaging conversation that is a place of ultimate neutrality, of, of neutral ground. So there's no place where I can stand as a Christian and a non-Christian can stand together and we can begin to think and engage with our minds in a place that's completely religiously neutral. This principle saying that doesn't exist. Okay, that doesn't exist. It's basically saying that everybody comes to the table with some basic heart commitments, some presupposed ideas. There's no place where I can stand with a non-Christian where we just completely forget all the things that we hold to and let's just stand in some neutral ground. That doesn't exist, okay? Everybody has a bias. Everyone has a bias. Let's, let's take some, uh, some of this from God's word. Romans 1. You can turn there. Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the, the Roman church. And pretty famous verses we've probably heard several times before in Romans 1. He's beginning to unpack uh, the, the problem with man. Let's look in, in verse uh, 19. He's describing all mankind and he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Paul's saying that everyone is starting from a place where the knowledge of God is completely evident to them. That the knowledge of God is plain to them in all that God has made. This is what theologians call uh, natural revelation in the things that have been made in the natural world all those things declare God exists and he is to be glorified right so it's plain to everyone but this is what he says in verse 21 although that knowledge although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for, uh, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, so this is what we call the suppressing of the knowledge that God has made plain that he exists, that he is there. Okay? So everyone, 
Every person that you would come into conversation with, every non-Christian has the evidence before them that God exists. It's plain to them. But they are taking that knowledge and they are suppressing it. They are pushing that knowledge away and instead of believing the truth, they are believing a lie. So, Everyone has this knowledge plain to them. We must recognize that every perspective, what we are coming to call in this course, every worldview we encounter, everyone we engage is coming from this place. Right? Everyone's thoughts are under this text. So if someone is arguing from a place, uh, maybe they're an atheist, so they are adamantly arguing that a God does not exist, we recognize from our biblical perspective, understanding that this is ultimate truth, right, with our presupposed idea, that they are doing that, arguing from a place of pushing aside what is plain to them and arguing from a lie. Okay, they're, they're choosing to stand from a place that is pushing aside what is plain before them. Does that make some sense? So that's really helpful for us. Their futility and their thinking uh, because everyone outside of God's revelation is darkened in their understanding and from a place of foolishness. Okay? So in our theme verse, 1 Peter 3.15, the beginning of that verse says to, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense. So when you do apologetics, you always have to do it from a place that is honoring Christ the Lord as holy. So Christ is the Lord. And his lordship is not limited there's no place where Jesus is not Lord over it. That's not just limited to the natural world and material things, things that we can see, right? Or just circumstances that we experience. He's Lord over all the things that we can physically see that are made. He's Lord over all the circumstances that we go through. And he's Lord over all understanding, logic, and knowledge. Right? Our, our minds and our ability to think and to comprehend and to put thoughts together and arguments together, Christ is Lord over that as well. So that means in order to obey this verse fully, when we do apologetics, we must do it from a place that Christ is always Lord. So when we argue, when we, we make uh, statements and arguments and try to bring evidences to bear for non-believers to understand, we want to do it understanding that, that Jesus is Lord over those arguments, over those thoughts. Okay? So... Hopefully, this is beginning to, to gain some understanding of why there can be no place that is neutral. There's no place where I can lay aside the ultimate truth and the ultimate Lord and just go, okay, let, let's just say for 
sake of argument, that the Bible's not true. And then engage in a conversation. I can't do that. Because we can't even begin to think without understanding how it is we can even think at all. Which comes from here. And from Christ as Lord over all things. So we have to hold the Lordship of Christ and the ultimate authority of Scripture always with us when we seek to engage in conversations. Okay? Listen to this quote from uh, Abraham Cowper. He says, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who was sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So every thought is under the sovereignty of Jesus. It's under his rule. Now, what we bring when we recognize this is that at some level, all unbelievers, they already know something of God. That's what we are seeing Paul's argument in Romans 1. Right? They've intentionally distorted that knowledge and exchanged it for a lie. So, Keeping that in mind, when we want to engage in conversation, we must recognize that this person doesn't recognize it, but they are already standing in a place that has some knowledge of God. Now, it's not the kind of knowing God that we talk about for the regenerated believer that knows God personally, right, as redeeming, loving Father, but they do have an intellectual understanding that there is a God and they're in their arguments, they're, they're working hard to push that away. So if we have someone who, who wants to say, okay, can't you lay aside your presupposed ideas and I'll lay aside my presupposed ideas and we'll come to this common ground where we can have neutral discussion. Now, we can have uh, common agreement on things that we would say are not necessarily religious bias, right? Some facts about nature. You can talk about gravity or, or things like that and say, okay, we can agree on those things. But what we have to understand is that ground that we can have common agreement, it's not a neutral ground. It's actually a Christian ground because Christ is Lord over all things. And so any understanding that anyone has of the world, even the ability to understand, comes under God's sovereignty and his revelation. So with this principle, part of apologetics is really understanding and helping non-believers see that any place they are already standing is already Christian ground. You just don't know that you're standing on it. Your ability to try and argue against me, that's already coming from a place where Christ is Lord. Does that make some sense? Okay, good. You're with me. Let me just give you quickly some, uh, some biblical uh, backup for this idea that there is no neutrality. So Jesus himself says um, in Matthew twelve thirty, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
So, does Jesus leave any room for neutrality or indifference uh, for a perspective on him? No, right? There's, there's no neutrality for a perspective on who Jesus is. You either believe what Scripture says about him, who he is, that he is King and Lord and Savior, or you don't. There's no neutral perspective. He says it himself. Paul says this in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There's no religious neutrality in that statement by Paul. You're either subject to the elemental spirits of the world, to human tradition, or you're subject to Christ. It's either one or the other. Uh, Another one from Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's one or the other. Understanding who God is by his word, the authority of Christ through the spirit, or not. Uh, That was Romans 8, uh, 5 through 8. Okay, so the big principle, there's no neutral ground. Okay? There's no neutral ground. And we have our own presupposed assumptions in any arguments. We bring with us the lordship of Christ and the ultimate authority of his word. So any kind of meaningful, engaging thought activity, it requires, um, it requires that we have these presupposed ideas. So think about it this way. When there are facts presented, or when there are experiences in front of us, as we look at any facts or any experiences, we always interpret those facts and experiences. We never leave facts completely neutral and experiences completely neutral. As we engage those things, our process of understanding them always comes from our own interpretation of what those things are because we have our own presupposed understanding of the world of who God is what is man what's the purpose of life all those big questions We have some understanding of, some answer to, and so anything we encounter, we already have uh, some interpretation. How do we understand these things? So everyone has a religious bias. Everyone has presupposed assumptions. Everyone brings those presupposed assumptions to an argument. Okay? Everyone has a religious bias, right? Atheists have a religious bias. It's just a negative one. But they bring that to every conversation. So some might, you might hear this, you know, the idea of letting the, the facts speak for themselves. 
um, we really can't let that just hang there because we all interpret those facts based on our own presupposed ideas of how those things work. We always um, see things dependent on um, what we're conditioned to see. Let, let me just give a quick example of this. Let's say that someone in our church, um, uh, a young person in their 20s, became seriously ill. And they were in hospital, and um, the diagnosis was dire, and this individual was uh, just given maybe a, a day or two days to live. What would we do as a church? Not a trick question. We would pray, right? We would pray. We would probably send out notice to everyone, such and such, this is the situation, please be praying. We may even gather people together to pray, right? Maybe pray through the night, all these things. This is how we would respond. And let's say we did that as a church, we responded in prayer, and the next day, um, this person uh, when the doctors go to check on them, they've, they've made a recovery, they've made a turn for the better, um, and actually now it looks like the doctors are baffled, it looks like they're going to make a full recovery. And, and you may even have sometimes doctors would, would even use the word miracle in this kind of situation. They, they can't explain it, none of the treatments that they gave explains the recovery, um, but this is what happened. So you go to work, the next day, and you talk to a coworker, and that coworker happens to be an atheist, and you tell them you'll never believe what happened. You're probably right in that statement. But you explain, this is what happened, this is the situation, and we got together as a church, and we prayed, and we prayed all night, and the doctors can't explain what happened. They made a full recovery. Can you believe it? How do you think that person is going to respond? They're going to say, that's amazing. There must be a God. What time is your service on Sunday? <laughs> not likely, right? We're kind of shaking our heads. Not, not likely. They're probably going to have in their own minds some way to argue back against what we are bringing to those things. They, they're not going to argue that the person was ill. They're not going to argue that the person made a full recovery because those things can be, can be looked upon. Those are facts that we can go look up, right? But they are going to argue the interpretation of how we understand what took place because they have their own presuppositions, their own presupposed ideas, their own bias to understand what took place. Does that make some sense? Okay, so that's where we're coming. First principle is uh, the no neutrality principle. And when it comes to apologetics, the presuppositions that we have about God are the most significant that we can have in life. What people believe about God, whether he exists, what kind of God he is, um, is he engaged in his world? Those are the most significant presuppositions that we can hold. So it's important to understand this, this principle. Second principle is called the no autonomy principle. The no autonomy principle. This is simply saying that there is no place in our thinking and in our argument, in apologetics, 
where there can be autonomy. This simply means self-law or self-rule. This is a principle that is getting at the root of authority. Okay? There can be no self-rule or no self-authority. So this principle is saying that our minds are not the final authority and standard for human thought. So a famous ancient philosopher, maybe you've heard this phrase before, man is the measure of all things. Heard of that phrase before? Okay, man is the measure of all things. Um, That is an autonomous uh, philosophy. That man is the final authority in himself. Okay? The individual man is the authority. But we are coming with an understanding that that is not true. That's not what we gain from God's revealed word. Right? God is the final authority and he has revealed his understanding and his standard for truth to us in his word. God is the final authority. Paul uh, says it this way in in Romans chapter 11. He says, uh, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. From him and to him and through him are all things. God is the final authority over everything. Man is in no position... To be the final authority. So all human thought must therefore be submissive to God's revelation. This is what Paul is getting at in this verse. Uh, here's another one. We talked about this one last week. Colossians 2, or, or earlier we talked about this one. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's a statement about authority. Okay? Don't be pulled away by that type of thinking that seeks to be autonomous. Man's authority, self-rule. But be under all that is according to Christ. Christ, his lordship, his authority. Listen, to, this is the one we mentioned last week. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Paul's saying... For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's an interesting way to put it, right? Every thought captive to obey Christ, to to bring every argument every idea, every philosophical standpoint, to take all of those things and to bring it 
under the authority of Jesus. His authority over all things. If you don't do that, then you're trying to stand and argue from a position of autonomy. Of humanity as being the final authority. But scripture won't allow it. Uh, The no autonomy principle follows naturally from the very idea of an absolute personal creator who reveals his thoughts to his creatures. So, if you come to an understanding that there must be a God, that he has created all things, and that this God is transcendent and sovereign over all, then it's just, it's just the natural process of thought to understand that then, then he must be the authority over all things. And if I'm part of that creation made by him, then I, I can't be the authority, and therefore my thoughts and arguments can't be the authority. His perspective, his thoughts must be the final authority. Make sense? So what we're saying is when we seek to argue and we understand that God is the final authority, in all of our arguments, we're simply trying to think God's thoughts after him. This is his perspective. This is his logic. This is his understanding. And this is what we must come under in order to bring arguments and clarity. Right? So there, there's a distinction between us and God, the creator and the creature. He is the maker of all things. He is in the position of authority. He is in the position to explain all things, and we are not. His mind is infinite. Ours is finite. Right? We are subordinate to him. Now, we may uh, experience some pushback that this kind of thinking, okay, you're saying that in order to engage in any conversation, you have to come with your presupposed ideas that the Bible is the authoritative truth over all things, Christ is Lord over all things. That's your Christian perspective, and you're bringing that into the argument. Isn't that just arguing in a circle? It's a, uh, a, a fallacy, a logical misunderstanding. You can't uh, assume the thing that you're trying to prove. That's just arguing in a circle. Listen to what uh, John Frame says about this. He says, um, Everyone else reasons the same way. Every philosophy must use its own standards in proving its conclusions. Otherwise, it's just inconsistent. So an example, those who believe human reason is the ultimate authority, which we just talked about, they must presuppose the authority of reason in their arguments for their own arguments, right? So they have to bring those things. So some people might say, listen, you can't just say that the Bible is the ultimate standard of truth and the, reason, and the way that you're going to prove that to me is by going to the Bible to prove it. But everybody argues their philosophy, their worldview from their own presuppositions. Nobody can come into an argument completely neutral. We all have a bias and we always carry it with us. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is why these two things, if you're grabbing this, 
this is extremely helpful for moving forward. This is why in this course, we want to equip you to engage people at the presuppositional level. What do I mean by that? Our arguments and our conversations, where we want to get at is people's basic heart commitments. So a lot of times in apologetics, people want to start talking about evidences and facts out here. So for example, it might be a conversation about uh, the, the historicity of Christ's resurrection. Let's talk about the, the historical evidence that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. Can we engage all these thoughts and these things? And that's okay to have that conversation, but we want to always have in our mind that our mission is to save souls, right? To bring the good news. And it's not about these facts independent of what's going on at the basic heart level. This person is coming to those facts with presupposed ideas and I want to understand what are their presuppositions? What, what, is, what is it that they believe first that's causing them to interpret those facts? So I want to engage them there because that's, that's really uh, what we're after. That, that allows us to bring the message and the mission to the right target. So uh, we can think about it this way. To engage non-Christians at the presuppositional level, there's a three-step three method that we want to take. And the first step in practice is to identify their presuppositions, to identify their worldview. Now, most people really don't even know they have a worldview. Most people don't even really think in, in those terms so part of what we do in apologetics is help people understand that they're, they're already coming from somewhere. They already have things that they're bringing and we want them to identify those things for, for themselves. But we want to identify those things for where we need to engage them with the truth of God's word. Now how would we do that? How would we identify someone's worldview? Any thoughts? Ask them questions, right? We would ask them questions about basic heart commitments. What do, you, do you believe that there's a God? If you do believe in God, what kind of God do you think he is? Do you think he's engaged in the world? Do you think he's not? Uh, what do you believe about mankind? What, what do you think is the, the meaning of life? What, what's your understanding of morality of good and evil do you think those things are objective or are they uh, autonomous trying to one get the person to think about their own worldview and help us identify okay this is where this person is coming from and when we do that it becomes clear to us where this needs to be brought into their understanding because of those basic heart commitments that they already have. So we, we, we ask them questions. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've come to realize in thinking about this this way is that many people, um, they hold to a worldview uh, 
kind of the reverse direction. They don't necessarily have sat down and answered those big questions of life and therefore that's the worldview that they hold. A lot of times people hold a worldview because of the conclusions. So maybe it's an, an ethical conclu- conclusion that they already have. Um, something like, uh, let's say, like uh, Darwinian evolution. These things must make sense. So they already have uh, that understanding. Or maybe it's about um, uh, gender identity or uh, sexuality. That they have an ethic, and so they think, okay, this is what I, what I like as an ethic, so therefore my, my worldview is a non-Christian worldview. But they haven't, they haven't actually engaged the big questions of life. And so this is a big part of how we seek to engage their heart, is to raise why, why do you believe that conclusion? What, what do you think about these basic heart commitment questions first? So we want to engage them there. So we seek to, number one, identify their worldview, the things that they are bringing already. And then we want to show the inadequacy of the non-Christian worldview, the non-Christian presupposition, right? So we, we identify what their worldview is, and then we ask questions, we bring God's word to bear, and we, we seek to show them how uh, their worldview, their presuppositions, ultimately can't make sense of the world and can't make sense of all reason and logic um, because it's not the perspective of God, and he's the one who has made all those things and is ruler over all those things. So we want to identify their worldview and then help them see how their worldview is inadequate. And then we would show how the Christian worldview is completely adequate. How it does have all the answers to these big questions. So we kind of, uh, maybe to, to give a picture to it, we, we help them see the boat they're in, their worldview. And then we help them understand that their boat has holes in it and it's ultimately sinking. And then we want to show them that the, the Christian boat is, is a worthy vessel and invite them to come aboard. Make sense? So that's, kind of, that's going to be our pattern as we go forward. In the coming weeks, we're going to take worldviews and we're going to look at them, understand them a little bit, and then identify their inadequacies. And that's how we can engage uh, the non-Christian. So all of this, I know it was a little bit, a lot thrown at you, uh, but it's, it's necessary to have under our feet to go forward in this. And I, I believe that this is the best way to, to do 1 Peter 3.15, to honor Christ the Lord by keeping his lordship central in all of our conversations, our ability to reason and think and to argue. If he's Lord over all things, he needs to be Lord over this area as well. Make sense? Okay, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you uh, that you have made the world and that by your kindness you have given us your, your revelation for understanding uh, how we interpret all of life, all that we experience, and who you are. And we ask that in these things you would help us to understand them well and that they would give us confidence in our own faith 
uh, and that you would give us favor in conversations with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.